Welcome to the Business Leader Podcast. My name is Serena and today our guest is someone who founded the largest sustainable business community in the world. He's devoted much of his career to helping businesses develop efficient and sustainable practices. Currently, he is the founder and CEO of his own SaaS carbon reduction platform, Manufacture 2030. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episodes. We'd love to hear your feedback. Email questions at businessleader.co.uk to get in touch. And now it's time to welcome Martin Chalcott to the podcast. We'll get on to Manufacture 2030 a little later on, but I want to just start off by asking you about how you got into the industry that you're in right now, but specifically kind of about your early life. Clearly, sustainability is is a big part of your life. And I'm just wondering if this drive comes from your younger years and kind of what it was like growing up for you that made you care so deeply about this issue. I guess it's been a long journey into sustainability and sustainable business. How far back you can trace it, I don't know. But like a lot of people, I was brought up on David Attenborough and I spent an awful lot of time in countryside and wilderness growing up and developed an affinity to nature, which is, I mean, in no sense unusual. I mean, it's a very common thing, isn't it? Um, So there was definitely that in my roots, I think. And I had very um, although my parents weren't entrepreneurs, they were very entrepreneurial. They, they, if they wanted to address a problem, they just got up and got stuck, rolled up their sleeves and got stuck in. And I think that attitude is deep inside my family's DNA is to get involved if you believe in something passionately. After I left university, I realized I was a really dangerous mixture of uh, very ambitious and completely unemployable. So you put those two things together. And you really have no option but to uh, try and create your own mode of employment and to start businesses. So my first set of businesses were um, in marketing and then in the very early days of the internet, we set up a very successful uh, internet development company. We built banks and rail tracks, timetables and and all sorts of interesting, very good business. And after I uh, left that company and, and served my golden uh, my years with Golden Handcuffs and the company that bought us. I was living in Oxford and I had friends at the Environmental Change Institute, which is part of the university here. And they said, Martin, you know, you're an entrepreneur. You like to get stuck into things and try and make a difference and make change happen. Come and learn about this thing called climate change. And this was at the end of the 1990s, beginning of the 2000s. And the truth is, I knew very little really about climate change. I mean, it was in the news a bit. But the lectures just made it absolutely clear to me that this was an extraordinary period of change we were about to enter, that if we did not embrace and make the most of it and drive out a positive and optimistic outcome at the end of it, then civilization itself was a threat. I mean, it sounds dramatic, but it really is an existential threat, not to the planet. Gaia will look after herself and, you know, it survived the meteor that wiped out the dinosaurs. You know, life isn't going to disappear because of us, but we might well, at least our civilization might well disappear if we don't do something about it. And the opportunity to do something very positive was very apparent. And I guess I had played, uh, you know, a not insubstantial role in the sort of internet dot com revolution of the 1990s. And it struck me that what we were about to see was another economic revolution. But this time around, how do you make business sustainable? To paraphrase uh, the chief executive of Cisco, John Chambers, who once said, there is no such thing as e-business. 
all business will be e-business or will not be in business at all. It struck me that in a way there's no such thing as sustainable business. All business will be sustainable or it will not be in business. As Mark Carney very recently said, any business that does not adapt to climate change will go bust. And that's absolutely the case. So I started attending lectures and trying to understand what climate change was all about and how it was going to affect business. And we started up with my, my longtime business partner uh, and co-investor, a chap called James Tarrin and I, set up an incubator first called Meltwater Ventures. And out of Meltwater Ventures came various businesses, including platform business that was using social media technologies to engage professionals interested in sustainable business. It was called Two Degrees. And out of that came our first platform for engaging suppliers at scale. And the the first people we did that for was Tesco. So we're talking about now 2008, 2009. Um, We worked with Tesco, getting knowledge sharing and exchange between the suppliers on how they could address waste, water and energy. Um, and that business grew and two degrees, you know, certainly expanded and did well, but the business model uh, always had its challenges. But we did bring on, we did work for GSK and Unilever and Asda and Co-op. Many of these companies, they're now clients of Manufacture 2030. So it was all focused on sustainable supply chains, very different business model, very different mechanism from where we are today. And ultimately, it wasn't really a scalable model. And I think also we were very early. The market wasn't ready. We were very early. And about four years ago, we took all the lessons we had from the two degrees years and all that work we had done in using the social media platform to share knowledge around sustainability. We took all, everything we'd learned, clients, contacts, and we pivoted the business and relaunched as Manufacture 2030. I just want to bring it back to sort of the 90s, as you said, when you were learning about sustainability and kind of sustainable businesses. What was the space like at that time? And and did you find it sort of intimidating um, to be going into the industry, especially at a time where, you know, there, there wasn't much information about it and, you know, people didn't really understand what climate change was? Yeah, good, good, good questions. Good questions. I have to cast my memory back. It feels like a long time ago, but it was the noughties when we, we started. So in the 1990s, we had this digital business that built rail tracks, timetables and built a bank for Abbey National and various things like that. I really got stuck in about 2002, 2003. That's when I really started to show a lot of interest. And the truth is that most people thought it was a peripheral exercise. The science was very heavily contested. Whereas now it's absolutely accepted. I mean, even then the scientists were pretty certain that this was very serious. So the scientists weren't debating it very much. They were pretty sure that this was anthropogenic and that it was heading to something disastrous. But they hadn't built consensus in business or in governments, in politics or, or in, you know, amongst the citizenry at large either. So it was very contested. The kinds of people involved were also very specialist. So they were, I'm going to be, I don't mean to be pejorative, but they were, you know, bearded and tree hugging and a bit more sandal uh, wearing. Whereas now, I think people involved in sustainability and sustainable business are mainstream business professionals. They, They very often come from a procurement background or a finance background or a marketing background, and they just recognize that this is the issue of the day. This is the challenge of a generation. This is the thing we have to deal with. And back in the early noughties, that wasn't the case. The only people really involved were the kind of 
I guess, if I can say it, almost kind of environmental business visionaries. So it was it was definitely a lonelier place. And it was hard work to get real progress. I think we probably were 10 years, probably early, really. You could spend a lot of time talking to businesses as we did, and not much progress was made. There was lots of sympathetic noises, lots of people saying, yes, yes, this is serious. We've got to deal with it. We've got to address it. Lots of people recognizing that there were big upsides for the business, lower costs, greater competitiveness, new product innovation, but it never felt to them that it was a burning platform. And so it was much, much more difficult to build momentum and to actually get things done. You know, our our breakthrough with Tesco was driven by the chief executive, Terry Leahy, who made a commitment to reduce the carbon in the products Tesco sells by 30% by 2020. Marks and Spencers were being very bold with their plan A Unilever with a sustainable living plan. So there were, it's not that there weren't some pioneers out there, there were, but it wasn't something the financial, the investor community, the financial services industry had bought into. So there wasn't a lot of financial pressure on companies to make the necessary changes and to mitigate climate risks. And so therefore it was, it was definitely like wading through treacle. And because I guess there wasn't much pressure on businesses at that time, as well as not being as much information readily available as there is today, what do you think really separated two degrees? What was the point that you realized that it was going to be a successful business and really people were paying attention? Well, but basically Tesco looked at the commitment Terry Lee had made and they realized if they were to reduce the carbon in the products, there was nothing they could do about it directly because they didn't make anything. It would mean that they had to mobilize their supply chain. And we had built a social platform, which was, I guess, we were thinking of it as like the LinkedIn of sustainable business. And could you create communities within it and on it where you could encourage suppliers to share knowledge and really highlight those who were making breakthroughs. Some some great businesses, my my favorite being a company called APS Salads, who put a double biodigester into their site, I think up in Cheshire, where they were growing tomatoes under glass. And not only did it generate electricity for them, it removed a waste product, which is the green bits of the tomato plant. It digested them in this double stomach It produced gas, which was then burnt to produce electricity, but it also produced a very nitrogen-rich fertilizer that got put back onto the tomatoes, and they captured the carbon from the burning of the gas, and they pumped that back into their greenhouses. And then they had uh, leftover liquid biogas, which they used to fuel their trucks. So used to get their trucks, the Tesco trucks, with tomatoes on the side, saying, powered by tomatoes. And so people like that were real pioneers and doing some very exciting things. And so we were able to share those as case studies and get those particular champions to explain what they were doing, why they were doing it, and how it was beneficial for their business to do it. So we we knew there was an appetite as soon as we set that up and started working with Tesco for suppliers to help each other. There was a sort of certain level of appetite for change for making a difference, understanding the science, understanding the business advantages of being sustainable at a certain level. But it was only rising very slowly. And then what really happened, we had a bit of a ramp up with Paris and the the, uh, agreement in 2015, where we, I say we, the, the world built for the first time consensus about the fact that this was an anthropogenic problem. 
that a target needed to be set, and it was set at 1.5 degrees centigrade, and that countries were going to build, were going to develop targets and strategies to get to that and do it in concert together. I think that that gave very strong signals to the private sector and to financial markets and to large corporations. And we start to see a bit of a pickup then in real corporate commitment to make change happen. But the real breakthrough, the real kind of flip, and it does absolutely take off, is COVID. What happened with COVID was unexpected. When it hit and we first had lockdowns across the world, the initial reaction from business was to go quiet for three or four months, not surprisingly, as they tried to deal with the immediate challenge that they faced. But what also happened was that boardrooms suddenly became emotionally aware, I think is how I put it, viscerally aware of the risks inherent in nature that could have destroyed value overnight, that they'd never quite taken seriously. Intellectually, they knew there was a thing called climate change. But now they saw something much lesser than climate change, wreaking havoc with stock markets and share prices and supply chains and consumer buying power, just like that. And I think there was a sudden realization that off-balance sheet challenges were real and had to be dealt with. And what we saw then in the the first year, towards the end of that first year of lockdown, we saw an absolute pickup. And Manufacture 2030, which we had launched two years beforehand, suddenly got traction in the market. And it's only got stronger since. The entire sustainable business market is driven not so much by government policy or by consumer preferences, but by long-term investors in capital markets demanding disclosure on climate risk and increasingly demanding action on climate risk. And the huge movement of money away from carbon-heavy industries towards the new generation of industries that we need for the future. And, And in some ways, I think this feels to me a bit like the late 90s, when huge amounts of money started to move into dot com businesses and into a whole digitalization of the of the global economy. And it feels to me something very similar is happening at the moment. That's really interesting. You just spoke about Manufacture 2030. So what exactly does a business do and why do you feel like it's necessary at this point in time? When we pivoted manufacture to Manufacture 2030 and we kind of took all our knowledge of how to work with supply chains on sustainability, we wanted to set up a software as a service platform which could capture data, um, and we'll come back to how we do this in a second, capture data and build relationships with suppliers on a large scale and provide those suppliers with the know-how to make change. And that if we could do that in partnership with the supply chain owners, so generally speaking, our clients are people like Honda and Toyota and General Motors, Asda and Co-op, GlaxoSmithKline. So they're global corporations with global supply chains on the whole. And if we could do it in part, so if we could do it in partnership with them, we could use their influence within global value chains at the top of those value chains as levers to accelerate change. And what really made that obvious to us was that increasing numbers of these large companies were signing up to science-based targets. They were making public commitments and disclosures. And those public commitments and disclosures required of them to do something about not just their own emissions, but the emissions upstream in their supply chain and the emissions downstream that were the result of consumers and customers using their products and services. And we were particularly focused on the upstream bit. And for most of the businesses that we were focused on in fast-moving consumer goods and grocery and automotive, pharma and chemicals, 50, 60, up to 90% 
of the footprint was actually in the supply chain. And so if they were going to meet the targets that they were setting, these science-based targets, they absolutely had to address and had to work with their suppliers to transform. And we can come back to that in a bit, but absolutely transform over time those supply chains to take the carbon out of it. And so we built the platform to support both the supply chain owner, but also to support the suppliers, because it's not good enough just to collect data from the suppliers and tell them what to do. The suppliers have their own challenges. They're not specialists at this. They're good at getting high quality product out of the door on time at a a price that's competitive. They've learned to do that in as lean a way as they possibly can under enormous pressure and haven't invested in, generally speaking, in sustainability or capacity for this kind of change. So they lack know-how. They don't see it traditionally as a priority and they lack access, if they're small and medium-sized suppliers, access to low-cost capital or to technologies that are necessary. So the suppliers have their challenge. So we wanted to build this platform that would enable us to partner with the supply chain owners to create a lever for transformation, which enabled us to use the data we were collecting to manage the suppliers, help them build action plans for change. So we provide sort of 500 plus best practices that can be used to reduce carbon footprint across key processes. And to build these action plans and to use these action plans to build what we call a glide path that uh, tracks towards their customer's target. So the customer has to, let's say, reduce the emissions in their supply base by, let's say, 50% by 2035 or 2030. So that means for every supplier, there's a target for them here. If this is where they start, this is where they've got to finish by that time, then there's a kind of glide path of actions they can take to get down there. What we always find is as they're building it, there's a gap. And that enables us to work with their customer and with them as a group to target interventions that can make a difference. And some of the interventions that are required can't happen at an individual supplier level. They can only be done collaboratively. So, I mean, a good, a good example that we're looking at at the moment, in some parts of the world, uh, renewable energy on the, on the grid uh, is very low. So in the UK, we've got about 40% of all grid electricity is renewable, which makes it very relatively easy to you know, decarbonize electricity if you're a business. If you're in North America, that might be around 10 or 12%. So it's not easy to get hold of renewable energy. And, and for manufacturing supplier sites who want that, the only thing they can really do is get someone to build a wind farm or some other source of renewable energy and develop what's called a power purchase contract where they contract to buy energy from that renewable source for a 20-year period. That's great if you're a large company like our client Honda, you can do that. But if you're a small and medium-sized supplier company, you don't have the creditworthiness to support a 20-year energy contract. So people won't build that for you. So the only way you can do it is by working with the customer to aggregate up demand from lots of medium-sized manufacturing sites, aggregate and securitize that into a bundle, and then use that bundle through a power purchase agreement for the development of renewable energy for them. So there are some things you've got to do collaboratively. You've got to harness scale and demand, aggregate it, organize it before you're going to make the breakthroughs that we need. Do you feel like there is an issue where a lot of businesses do want to be sustainable and do want to make their supply chains more sustainable and efficient, but lack the know-how and um, lack the awareness of this? And, and if this is the case, how important is education within this process? 
Uh, it's really very important. I mean, there, there, I don't think there's, I can't imagine there's a business out there that wants to knowing, well, there can't be very many, maybe there are some, that knowingly wants to damage the global environment. So the vast majority of businesses would like to be sustainable. The challenge they have first and foremost is that they operate in a highly competitive market, probably on pretty thin margins, and they are not convinced that them being sustainable and investing in their sustainability is a priority for their customers. Their customers have to really communicate why this is a priority and, and convince them that it is. The second thing is that you're absolutely right. Whilst they may then say, okay, look, we really want to be part of this. This is the future. We want to be fit for the future. We want to play our part. Where do I start? How do I get going? Nobody, I've got nobody in my organization who specializes in this. You know, we've got to rethink our entire business. So there's definitely um, a need for education. And, and so the first part that our platform does, Manufacture 2030, in helping them build the action plan is about educating and building capacity. Where, you know, these 500 best practices I mentioned, you can draw down the best practices which are relevant for your kind of business. There's a sort of algorithm that helps you do that. And then we support those actions with webinars and with fact sheets and case studies and data sets and so forth so that you can understand what it's going to take to do it and what the, the benefits of carrying out a particular action are. So that's an incredibly important part of it. It had to be really practical. But there's a bigger question around education, I think. And this is not so different from those dot-com days where I kind of cut my teeth as, a, as an entrepreneur. Back in the 19, late 1990s, there was a company, a business, which was absolutely the number one in its market and totally dominant that some of your readers and viewers will remember, Encyclopedia Britannica. Utterly dominant in its market. The internet comes along and there's all this talk about how you've got to e-enable businesses or digitize businesses. I don't know if the word digitize was used at the time, but essentially. And they thought what that meant is that they had to build a website that would market Encyclopedia Britannica. And then Wikipedia came along with a completely different business model that was purely digital. And within a couple of years, Encyclopedia Britannica didn't even exist, disappeared. That level of understanding and education, which I think we need at board level, so not necessarily down in the ground at sites within factories where it's really about re-engineering things, but we need a reimagining of what value chains are going to be like as all businesses become sustainable businesses or they won't be in business at all, that we will have a similar level of transformation. And I'll give you a very a couple of examples. I mean, one is very obvious, which is the electric vehicles. You know, the entire automotive industry, I mean, all our clients are in a process of transformation. And the business, the product that they are beginning to develop from self-driving autonomous cars that are powered by electricity, you know, the, the whole thing is the product in 10, 15 years' time is going to be wholly different from what they've got today. So that's a big one. It's very obvious to us, isn't it? And if all you were thinking was decarbonizing my supply chain, if I was a Toyota, if I thought all it was was to reduce the carbon in the combustion engine manufacturers that I'm working with currently, well, you'd realize, well, they're not even going to be in business. So it's not that. So electric vehicles is obvious. Less obvious, but I think incredibly uh, enlightening is the journey Morrisons, who are also one of our clients, has gone through with getting eggs to market. If you to analyze the footprint of an egg, where the carbon sits, it's in the chicken feed. And the chicken feed is the hottest spot in the, in the, in the footprint because industrial scale chicken feed is soya. And soya has a lot of deforestation in it. 
So they wanted to decarbonize that bit in particular. They also had another challenge at Morrison's, as all grocers do, which is with food waste. And so they ended up doing something utterly different. It wasn't about decarbonizing the soya feed, chicken feed supply chain. It was about moving away from that altogether. They're now taking food waste. They've found partners who have insect farms. They're feeding the food waste into the insect farms. They are at an industrial scale generating insects, turning those insects into chicken feed. You've now got waste and carbon being removed from the system or recirculated, might be a better way of thinking about it, productively recirculated, and you've got you know, zero carbon eggs being produced out, out of this process. And I think the sustainability revolution, which we're beginning to go through, what it really represents is not just an opportunity to make more carbon efficient business as usual as we have it today, but to transform business to be fundamentally better, more competitive, more efficient, more innovative. And I don't think that is something that most boards yet understand and recognize. And they are a bit like, and you know, encyclopedia in the late 1990s at the moment, and they've nearly, they've got to change their mindset to become more Wikipedia. That's a really interesting way of putting it. Um, going back to the organizations and businesses that you've worked with, specifically within Manufacture 2030, I'm wondering if you can think of any businesses that have demonstrated best practice, especially within, you know, their supply chains or making their supply chains more sustainable. Yeah, no, of course. So here in the UK, we do a lot of work with grocers. So maybe I, mean, I could talk about others, but I think it's a, it's a, a really good local uh, example. We've been working uh, at Manufacture 2030 for the last three years or so with Asda and Co-op. And they've engaged pretty much all of their tier one food and drink manufacturers and some of their other uh, suppliers as well. And you can see we've been able to track the suppliers developing these action plans and implementing these action plans and reporting annually on the reductions that they're making. And, you know, we've seen sort of 80,000 metric tons of carbon being pulled out of that supply chain. And it's equivalent of if you were to take about 17,000 cars off the road for a year to give you some sort of sense of how much carbon is being produced. It's a, it's a large chunk of carbon. Huge amounts of education has been promoted by uh, Asda and Co-op with those. It's approximately 800 or so uh, suppliers that make it up. I think they, they've been about 1,500-odd webinars sharing best practice and knowledge, I think, just in 2021. And I think over a slightly longer period, you're, we're close to sort of a 50 million pounds of cost taken out of that food and drink supply chain. So you can see real numbers, tangible numbers from, you know, what people like Astor and Co-op are doing. And what makes them best practice is, I guess, the amount of time they've been doing it. They've been engaging with this supply base for some years, patiently building up a partnership with their suppliers, sharing their vision for how their business, their supplier's business is going to be better as a result of doing these things, explaining why it's inevitable, why it's a journey they have to get on because the world has to change and then making it easy for those suppliers, providing with them the knowledge with all of those webinars through our platform with those best practices, making it as easy as possible to collect the data that's required so you can build these action plans and glide paths and you can see the rate of reduction you need to move at. And we're beginning to look with them and then with others at how do we get low-cost capital to those suppliers so they can implement some of the more capitally intensive projects. Um, so I think, you know, Astra and Co-op Partly just because they've been doing it longer 
and and thoroughly are beginning to build some really great momentum in their supply chains like that. That's great. Yeah, those are some really good examples um, of businesses that are making their supply chains a lot more efficient. The name Manufacture 2030, I I guess the year 2030 has gained quite a lot of significance um, in recent years. A lot of businesses are aiming to, to achieve net zero by that year. What does net zero really mean? And what can businesses do to make an effort towards being net zero? Yeah, well, they, they should be. <laughs> I mean, we, we really do need everybody to be aiming for a net zero goal. So net zero goal simply means across your entire value chain. So from your suppliers through to your own operations to how your consumers are using consuming, heating, cooking, washing your product, that you're able to net off the carbon you're emitting with carbon that you're saving. And the only way you can do that at scale across an entire global economy is to reduce as much as possible the carbon we're emitting. For some business, there will always be some carbon emitted, which then needs to be offset. But the offset bit needs to be the last piece in the jigsaw. So across the entire value chain, first, you need to reduce. And that means you know, transforming the value chain, reconsidering you know, what waste is, redesigning products so they're circular, finding new business models so you don't sell product in fast fashion, you're finding renting models or leasing models or repairing models. You're completely rethinking the materials that go into products, the design of products, the use of products, your commercial relationship between you and your customer and those products. So total transformation needs to take place. And once you've done that, or you have plans in place for that, there will be some elements which maybe you can't uh, make carbon neutral today, or maybe you never will be able to, in which case then you've really got to start thinking about for that minority of areas of your footprint, you've got to be thinking about offsetting. You know, the UK has a net zero strategy out to 2050. Other companies and organizations might be as ambitious as 2035 or 2040. There are a few at 2030, but most of them are beyond that. But 2030 is an incredibly important day, not just because the sustainable development goals are set for that date, but also because the latest work from the International Panel on Climate Change clearly shows us that we have got to have cut emissions by 50% by that point. So we haven't got rid of them altogether, but we are significantly reducing them. We have This is a decade where we have to get through the tipping point of change for us to get this challenge under control. Mm -hmm. Do you feel optimistic about reaching this goal? What's what's your personal opinion on this? Do you still have your optimism? Yes, I do. I do. I do. I do. It's really important to be optimistic. It's one of our fundamental values at Manufacture 2030 is optimism. Others are things like collaboration and inclusiveness and agility and pragmatism. But optimism is one of them. And it's there because if you're not optimistic about humankind's ability to organize itself and make change happen, you will never motivate yourself to make the effort that's required. So that's a kind of psychological thing. But more importantly, perhaps, we have reason to be optimistic because we have seen, you know, mankind and modern society making significant transitions before in the past very, very quickly in the time frame we're talking about. The internet revolution and the digitization of our society, that revolution was a sort of over a 10-year period where we got through that tipping point, if you like. So we know it can be done economically. 
we have the technology. It's not as if a lot of technology needs to be invented. There may be some areas where technologies can be developed further and at an industrial commercial scale, which is necessary. But, you know, it's not as if we need magic silver bullets for this. It's not, that's not the challenge. The financial markets, particularly long-term investors, have woken up to the reality and the threat. And investors in enterprise, venture capitalists and others, have woken up to the size of the opportunity. Governments have their part to play. They've got to allow us to have level playing fields. They've got to put in place regulation. They've got to enable you know, low-carbon cost economies not to undermine other economies. So you know, that, that they have their role to play, but I think the leadership is now coming from financial markets, from entrepreneurs and investors, and the fact that we've done this before should make us optimistic that it's that it is doable. But we do have to get our skates on. This is not a time to sit around and theorize. It's a time for action. And do you feel like governments are doing enough within this? Uh, Do you feel like governments are putting enough pressure on businesses to adopt sustainable practices? Nobody's doing enough. So business isn't yet doing enough either. But government definitely isn't doing enough. Even if you take all the pledges from, you know, they came out of Paris and then came out of Glasgow, we're still off the target. Now, like all these changes, there is going to be a ski lift ramp up effect. But we don't want to leave that ramp up to be too steep too late. It gets expensive and it gets disruptive and it gets difficult. You know, we want to make that ramp as flat as we possibly can. I'm mostly disappointed with government because we've been given two crises recently, which could have been an opportunity to build back better and build back greener. COVID and now Ukraine. Europe should decouple itself from oil and gas, particularly Russian oil and gas. And the way to do that is to really invest heavily in renewables and in renewable storage. I mean, that has to be the way forward for the whole world. So we need to take this as an opportunity to make us realize how vulnerable we are in the short term to hydrogen carbon states and how we need to decouple ourselves from their economies. In COVID, likewise, We had an opportunity to reinvigorate the economy around the globe by investing in new green jobs, in new technologies, in green infrastructure. And some of that has happened, but not nearly enough. So, you know, we want to seize, governments need to seize these opportunities. They are times when change is going to have to happen, where consumers and citizens recognize change and the need for change. And so, you know, government needs to step up to the plate, up to the mark and um, turn crisis into opportunity. And it's not really doing that at the moment. We're coming out of the pandemic. Of course, uh, the war in Ukraine is, is happening. How might this um, affect supply chains and, and the ability of businesses to become more efficient? What, what impact might this have um, on sustainability? Well, I mean, obviously, in the short term, supply chains are massively disrupted, aren't they? I mean, you know, cost of living crisis and um, supply crisis currently, some of which is obviously to do with energy, but uh, a lot of it is also just to do with, you know, disruptions in the supply chain, in particular key areas like in China and Shanghai at the moment. I mean, that is hopefully a short-term pain for business and for, for consumers. But it also highlights to businesses the importance of supply chain resilience, And I think businesses have got rather used to the flexibility inherent in the idea of a global supply chain and global economy, the ability to move things around relatively easily. And now they realize, well, actually, there's a lot of inherent risk 
in having that, and we need to build in much more resilience. So I think we will see, almost inevitably, I believe it's already happening, a degree of reshoring or onshoring. We will see the shortening of some supply chains. I hope the EU and other countries will start imposing border taxes for carbon, which will help level the playing field as national economies drive to their net zero targets. But in the long term, that change again is an opportunity to make them more sustainable. And the global corporations we're working with, we're seeing no slowdown by them in their engagement of their suppliers. So whilst there is a recognition that there are challenges right now that are short term, that are difficult, that they're focusing on, they see that now within a larger frame, which is over a, how do we over a five and 10 year period transform sustainably our supply chains. And so uh, I don't see us being rocked off course. I do see us at times being maybe, maybe some decisions are taking a little longer to make. But if anything, I think rather like with COVID, people's recognition of the vulnerability of the economic system we have built for ourselves requires change. I think that is a stronger driver um, than the short-term supply challenges. That's really um, enlightening. So the final uh, segment of the, the podcast and our final question, it's called Answer the Internet. So this is where we scour the internet for the questions that the public needs answers to. Uh, the question we'll put to you today is, is it possible to tax companies for the amount of greenhouse gases they produce? Well, in theory, it is. I mean, absolutely no reason why not. Um, one can measure the greenhouse gas emissions of a company, both its what they call scope one, scope two, and scope three, so across the entire value chain. And if you were to do that in a way that I guess was legally robust enough, then it would not be difficult to construct a tax system around it. The tax system that seems to be discussed at the moment is more around kind of border taxation about, you know, differences in carbon emissions of industries. So that what you don't want is if you start putting pressure on your on your the businesses in within a, a nation state or within a an area like the EU, you put pressure on them to decarbonize and they make investments to do it. In the short term, that can in some cases, particularly in very heavy industries, lead to higher costs. And you don't want businesses just upping and relocating to somewhere else where there isn't that pressure for them to decarbonize and then exporting the goods back into the EU or back into the UK. So in that case, it is almost inevitable, I think, that you have to establish some sort of border taxation based on carbon to prevent that from happening so that you encourage leveling out of playing fields across the globe and people moving at the same speed. Great. Do you have any final words for the audience? Be optimistic. Don't hang around. Data is important, but action is even more important. Embrace this and lean into it. It's an opportunity. It's not just a, a problem. It's a real opportunity for businesses to build competitive advantage, to get leaner, and uh, it's, it's an opportunity to be seized.